but how many basketball players have you gotten from Instagram? Awkward pause. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is the January 2023 Q&A episode. Now, not going to lie, pretty excited about this show. I love doing these little Q&A episodes. I think it's a nice reprieve from some of the longer, more interview-focused shows, and it also allows me to reconnect with people like you and answer your questions, because sometimes it's really hard in an article uh, or sometimes in a video to answer some of the questions that you might have. So, I mean, we got some great questions today. We're going to talk about the compression expansion model and the impact it's had on my philosophy. We're going to talk about managing asymmetries in your rotary sport athletes. So if you work with baseball, tennis, uh, volleyball, handball, golfers, really think that the things we dive into there are going to be helpful. We're going to talk about online coaching something that I have been doing since 2006, very passionate about online coaching. Uh, But I think a lot of people make it way too difficult. They make it way more challenging than it needs to be. So we're going to talk about the things that I focus on, how to streamline your process. We're going to talk about force plates because, man, as you know, I'm pretty jazzed on the force plates right now. If you're following me on the gram, you're probably getting at least one force plate video per week. Just love it. I put myself through an assessment last week, so we're going to talk about kind of the evolution that I'm going through there and my next steps and trying to get better. We're going to talk about content creation because, man, this is such a hot topic in our industry. Everybody is giving you the FOMO effect, like, oh, man, you got to create more content, how to make better content, da-da-da-da. Okay, well, who are you creating content for and how is it going to impact them? We're going to talk about it. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about this one plus one method of queuing. I created a Twitter post about it, put it on Instagram. I've gotten really great feedback. But if you want to coach and queue your clients more effectively, this one plus one method is super easy and super, super effective. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to go ahead and jump right in to this week's episode. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym 
And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Okay, so really big question to start. Jonah wants to know, what is the biggest thing the expansion compression model has changed for you? And man, Jonah, this is such a loaded question and something that I've thought quite a bit about over the years. First off, I don't know if I love the compression expansion model uh, description. I think of it as Bill Hartman's model. Now I realize for all the, the gurus and internet experts out there, it's not cool to, to defer to somebody else and call it the Bill Hartman model. They just want to call it compression expansion. But, you know, in reflecting on my own experiences here, I think there's a lot of good and there's some bad in there. Uh, and that's not a reflection of Bill. That's a reflection on where I'm at as a coach and a practitioner. But I learned a lot about why I was successful early on in my career and why I've had a lot of success in my career by understanding the model better, right? And I think one thing that I intuitively understood was that, hey, if somebody doesn't have access to a certain range of motion, we need to unlock that in most cases, right? Like not everybody, but a lot of the athletes that I work with have poor hip extension right? Or we would have said, oh, they have tight hip flexors. So we would chase hip extension. And if you kind of look at that triplanar compression expansion model, we know that, hey, if you don't have hip extension, adduction, and internal rotation, it's kind of a composite movement there. Bill would say it's just a triplanar movement. It is internal rotation. If you don't have access to that, okay, well, you're more likely to deal with hip impingement issues, potentially knee pain, potentially lower back pain, your movement strategies are gonna be compensated as a result. So I think early on I recognized this, even if I didn't understand the underlying principles as we look at it now, right? To us, back in the day, uh, a tight hip flexor was a tight hip flexor. Now we look at it as a lack of hip extension or lack of hip internal rotation decreases uh, our movement options, it decreases our ability to produce force and has you know, potentially potentially a lot of negative side effects. So for starters, I think I learned a lot of things about why what I was doing that was working was working. It gave me a better understanding. But here's what I think was most valuable. It gave me a better understanding for why things that weren't working weren't working. So it's hard to describe because you're asking me to kind of summarize like my philosophy here and I feel like so much of what I've done and that Bill has then layered in has been kind of intermingled over the years. But I think some of the great things about this and some of the great things that Bill has brought to light, first off, just defining the archetypes, right? Giving us a better understanding of wides versus narrows. So I think we've always kind of had these 
these ideas or these concepts of these different types of athletes. Like when I think of a wide, if I want to think of a strength athlete, I just think of a power lifter, right? Like a moving fire hydrant. Doesn't really rotate a lot. Everything is straightforward and backward and really good at lifting heavy things, right? They're your high-end strength or force producers. And then on the other end, you've got your narrows, right? Which I used to think of as your bouncy and elastic type creatures. But beyond just having these archetypes, I think it's given me this better understanding of how to train each or why I would do certain activities with each. So intuitively to me, it has always made sense. If I have a strength focused athlete, right? Like let's say I have a really big rugby player or maybe uh, I don't like using the the idea of a, an offensive or defensive lineman in football because their body mass uh, precludes them from doing certain activities or I probably wouldn't do a lot of jumping activities. But when you understand, hey, there are certain creatures that we're going to train that are very force dominant. It only makes sense. Hey, we should probably do more elastic training with them. Teach them to utilize that stretch shortening cycle. Teach them to be a little bit more energy efficient. Because we know the more they have to rely on muscular tension to produce force. Hey man, that's very energy expensive, right? And I think it's also always made sense because I worked with a lot of volleyball players back in the day. Hey, these bouncy elastic creatures generally they need some force production. Like if you just get them under a bar and have them squat or you have them trap bar immediately, like their vertical jump goes up. So we've kind of known this, but it's given me a better understanding of why these things work. The other thing I think it's really done is it's given me such a better understanding of how to better train my narrows. So being a wide myself and working with a lot of wides coming from the powerlifting space, I've kind of intuitively known what to do with them because it's kind of, you have a better understanding of how to train yourself. But when you have somebody that's a totally different archetype, sometimes you struggle because your own bias is always there. And you think, well, this worked for me, so it'll work for somebody else. And maybe, but maybe not. So if I'm a wide and I'm trying to train a narrow like a wide, I'm not going to get the optimal result. So having a better understanding of how to train narrows with respect to, hey, there are certain activities they're going to be really good at, others they're going to struggle with. Um, just because they have that great full deep squat, it might look awesome when they're doing an FMS or some sort of you know mobility testing, but if their goal is to produce force, that's actually going to be a detriment to their performance, right? We need to teach them to be more explosive. We need to teach their pelvic floor how to ascend. We need to teach them how to exhale, right? To create and produce compression or to produce force. So I think it's really run the spectrum for me, Jonah. And I, I'm not sure I have a great answer here because again, you're asking me to take my philosophy and like reflect on it and summarize on it. But I think on the one hand, it's been really good in the sense that it's given me explanations as to why certain things were working. And on the flip side, if I'm looking at the negative, at least for me personally, it's shown some of my weak points and some areas that I needed to get better at. And so when it comes to training, I think that's part of the game, right? Like you're never perfect. You're always evolving. So it's helped me better understand why I had success. And it's also given me better understandings as why I might have struggled with certain clients or athletes and how I can shift or adapt my philosophy with them going forward to help them get better results. All right, next question comes from John. It looks like Jan, but it's pronounced John. Uh, 
So John wants to know, how do you correct a big difference in left and right rotation in the thoracic spine? I see this a lot in tennis and handball players. Their rotation on the dominant side is much larger than their non-dominant. Along those same lines, how do you work on anterior expansion to get more internal rotation in the shoulder? Okay, so great question here. Uh, and I think a lot of these concepts, if I wanted to break down rotation, John would be better served in like a video. So maybe I'll do that at a later point in time. But I think trying to describe this to somebody that's unfamiliar with compression and expansion and all these different areas of the thorax may be overwhelming. So what I wanna do is narrow our focus here. And I think before we dive into the question, there's two things we have to mention or we have to think about. Number one, as you kind of alluded to, I wanna make note of this, asymmetries like this, tennis players, handball players, golfers, baseball players, their asymmetry is normal and furthermore, it's performance enhancing. So your goal isn't to take it away. Your goal is to manage it. And that takes me to my second point. Don't think about creating symmetry. And I know you're not, but other people might be. Don't think about trying to create symmetry, but rather think about better managing their asymmetry. And this is something that I'm doing regardless of whether somebody plays a rotary sport like this or just a lot of the clients and athletes I work with. They aren't managing their asymmetries well. And now all of a sudden they've got knee pain or back pain or shoulder pain. So don't think about creating symmetry. Think about managing asymmetry. Okay. So what I tend to see a lot are when somebody is turning excessively to their dominant side, they are losing internal rotation in that same side, right? So you have basically a room to move into on the back side of the body and you don't have a room to move into on the front side. So think about it like this, a right-handed pitcher, right? They probably have tons of external rotation. They don't have a lot of internal rotation. And that's reflective when we were talking about the compression expansion model. Hey, on the back side of their shoulder, there's a space right? The backside of the body is reflective of ER or external rotation. So I have the ability to lay back, but when I go to follow through, if my right chest wall is collapsed, well, hey, the chest wall and the front side of the body reflect internal rotation. So I don't have a space to move into. So I think that's really important to note. If you don't have a space to move into, you will not have movement there. I talked about this in the complete coach cert. You can't move into compression. So this is why when you put somebody on a treatment table and you check their internal rotation and they have, you know, zero degrees or 20 or 30, whatever it is, if they don't have internal rotation, they don't have the ability to expand the chest wall on that side. So John, kind of your follow-up question was, well, how do you get that anterior expansion? And I think this is where you have to think of it at multi-levels, right? Maybe it comes in your resets. Maybe you're doing activities that promote anterior chest wall expansion uh, in your resets. And this is where maybe your bear type activities come in, uh, your offset bears, reaching activities. Now, this is confusing for a lot of people, uh, myself included early on because I, I struggled with this. But when you're doing reaching type activities, you're getting a yield from the musculature and the connective tissues on the backside, but you're also driving air into those chest walls. So especially 
if you're in like a bear type position, right? Gravity is working for you. Gravity is going to help you pull, for lack of a better term, air into the front side of your chest walls. So it can start with activities like that. From there, offset upper body work is huge. So if you've ever seen my programs or you've seen how I've, I've programmed for a lot of these types of athletes, I'm trying to manage that asymmetry with offset upper body work. So maybe if we're doing a push-up, instead of doing a standard push-up, which is going to continue to reinforce their asymmetry, right? Because they're already not symmetrical. They're already getting turned back to the right. Maybe I'm going to flip that and give them an offset push-up where their right hand is on the ground and their left hand is on a box or on a medicine ball, right? So I'm creating that turn with my offset upper body work. I think it also comes down to being effective on the lower half as well. And if you followed the stuff that I've been putting up on Instagram lately, there's a lot of offset work, teaching people how to push off their right side. This is something I struggle with, right? Like all of the rotary sports I played growing up, I played baseball, I played volleyball, uh, I golfed very poorly, <laughs> you know, but I'll, everything that I did was, you know, rotating back into the right. So you have to learn how to push from that right leg as well. So this is where when you're programming offset activities in the gym, hey, I'm going to put the weight in my right hand. Uh, I'm going to do sled drags where I'm pushing from right to left. I'm focused on those coaching cues of, hey, find your right arch, right? Find a good right arch position and then push from right to left. So I think there's a lot of things you can do here, John, like it can start as simple as your resets and it can get as sexy and as exotic as, you know, the activities you're prescribing in your R4, your R5 and the R6 sections of your workouts. But you got to address it early on, try and create the shapes and the positions and the spaces that you need to move into with your resets. And then from there, continue to reinforce those with your R4, your R5, and your R6 activities. So John, again, a little hard to describe some of this in a podcast, but I hope this gives you some food for thought and I hope it helps you get better results with the athletes you're training. Okay, our next question comes to us from Patrick. Patrick would like to know, how do you work with remote or online clients and do you have any advice or tips on working with them? Now, Patrick, great question. I get asked this on an almost weekly basis. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that people who want to get into this space make is they assume that it's nothing like offline training. Like it's this whole new thing. And I think that's a huge mistake. Okay. I think the best thing that you can do is take your offline training processes and try and mold them as best as you can to the online training space. So for instance, if somebody comes into your gym, I'm assuming they do an assessment, right? You take them through whatever, whatever, you know, shoulders, hips, squats, lunges, whatever you do, how can you take that and put it into an online format? So for me, I have my clients do some static posture pictures. They do some movement videos for me. They fill out like an intake form, but I try and make it as streamlined and as similar to my offline training as I possibly can. So my online clients do an assessment. Uh, once they're done, I do like an intake and a review. I look at what is their movement like? What are their goals? What equipment do they have access to? Then from there, the programming really isn't that much different, right? Like if somebody's goal is to shed body fat, you know they need 
higher reps, incomplete rest periods, a mix of compound and isolated movements. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Programming doesn't change all that much. But here is the big thing. I think video is huge. When I started in 2006, I was really handicapped because the people that were sending me online training information, I mean, video wasn't a thing, right? Like nobody was doing video back then. YouTube wasn't a thing, Vimeo, whatever platforms we have now, especially the streaming high quality video. But now video is huge and it's really twofold. Number one, I think you need good educational or demonstration videos to show them what proper technique looks like. So if you want somebody to split squat a certain way, you need a video that represents that. If you want somebody that's got a really good hinge, you need a video that demonstrates that. So it's very clear what your expectation is via your videos. Now, if you don't have them, what I've told people oftentimes is, hey, find somebody who does have really good videos. And when I've, I've kind of mentored people on this process in the past, I said, hey, just use my videos, right? Like I'm not the best mover on the planet. I don't uh, proclaim to be, but I think the videos are fairly high quality. They're fairly short and direct, and they're gonna show your clients and athletes how you want them to move. So either you need videos or you need to find somebody that has them. But on the flip side of that, video is really important for feedback as well. And this is something that I really try and push with the people that I work with. Like if you're not gonna send me video, this isn't gonna work. Um, and again, this was a limitation early on because people couldn't send videos. I didn't really know what their squat or their bench or their deadlift or their chin-ups look like. I had no clue how they were moving. And so I was really guessing as to what kind of progressions they could handle. Now I just tell my clients and athletes, look, if we're gonna to work together online, this is gonna be successful, you have to send me videos. Now, I don't need a, a video of every single set and rep of every exercise you do in a workout, that's kind of annoying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch that many reps even if I was training you live and in person. But what I do need are those really key activities, right? Like if we're honing in on your squat, or on your split squat, and they're very targeted things I need to see, you have to send me videos of those regularly so I can see if we're trending in the right direction. If we are, great, then I can continue to layer and progress you. But if you're not, then we have to kind of do some damage control and we have to figure out why isn't this working? You know, Is it your ability to understand the activity? Am I giving you the wrong coaching cues? But video, I can't stress this enough, video is huge, both in regards to you demonstrating the activities and how you want them performed and in giving them feedback on how they're performing those activities. Uh, from there, I think your coaching and cueing points are critical. When I was doing the, this in Word for years, I would put you know coaching and cueing bullet points off to the side. I do the same thing now that I'm using Train Heroic because again, once they see the video, then maybe there are certain things that you need one client to focus on versus the other. So if you're taking, let's just keep using the split squat example, some people have that tendency to really cave or fall forward. So for certain people, I may really emphasize, hey, I need you to keep your torso tall, right? I need you to keep your torso back. For somebody else, maybe they have that tendency to get on their toes. So I would say, hey, I really need you to find and feel your heel throughout the course of this activity. So that combination of videos and coaching and cueing points will really help bring this together and make your process as streamlined as possible. And then if I've got one last piece of advice, and I know this is gonna come off as salty, 
but I'm just going to say it. If you're not already a pretty good coach, don't even bother with online coaching yet. And again, I'm not saying that to be mean or disparage anybody. It's not the case, but I am going to say this. All of the wiggle room that you're afforded when you train somebody offline, when you're working with them in person, that is gone, right? You have to be very clear. You have to be very concise when you're training people online because if not, they're going to interpret things however they want. So if you don't give them a great video, if you don't give them really dialed in and an efficient coaching and queuing bullet points to think about, they're going to struggle. They're not going to get great results. And as a result, you're not going to enjoy the process. So I'd say until you're a really good coach in person, you're really confident in your program design skills, your ability to coach and cue clients, to get real impactful change in people's movement, I think you're going to struggle. So again, that's not to put anybody down. That's not to disparage anyone, but be really comfortable in your skin as a coach offline before you think about moving online. Okay, question number five comes from Trevor. Trevor wants to know, where am I at with my force plates? And am I still as excited about them as I was a couple months ago? So Trevor, great question. Love talking about this. A thousand percent, yes, I am absolutely loving them. Shout out to Hawk and Dynamics. Love the product. Love the support that I've gotten from the team over the last couple months. It's really been exciting. And I mean, I'll be honest, like, I don't know if I've been this excited about something since I really started diving into movement like 20 years ago. Like, it's really at that level. And I find myself constantly getting drawn to, you know, what people are posting on Instagram, uh, on force plates, uh, you know, watching YouTube videos, reading research, uh, going back and reevaluating the work that I've already done with, you know, the various athletes and looking at their assessments and just asking more questions. But I think one of the things that people are asking is like, what am I doing, right? Like, what am I doing to get better? And there's a couple things that I think would be beneficial, whether you have force plates or not. Uh, I think some of the processes that I'm using would be beneficial. So to get better, again, because I'm a neophyte, right? <laughs> again, I almost don't even count the two and a half years I spent at Ball State because it was so long ago. Um, so I'm just assuming like right now I'm a total noob. I know nothing. So to get better, number one, I'm doing two to three assessments every week. Um, so I'm just trying to find random people, um, athletes that I've worked with in the past. Sometimes new people are wanting to get started. Sometimes it's just, you know, Rufus brought up three of his kids a couple weeks ago, which was awesome. And we got to evaluate them and, you know, found some pretty cool stuff actually, as far as like their movement strategy and maybe some potentially uh, underlying issues that they were unaware of. But bottom line is I'm just trying to get reps every week. Uh, I even put myself through an assessment last week and I did, you know, some stuff that I normally wouldn't do with other people because I wanted to try it. I wanted to see how it would work on myself first and see if there was merit or value in doing some of these tests. Because one thing I don't want to do is overwhelm the people that I'm working with with 30 different tests. So that's why I made it a focus early on. I'm just going to do a couple tests. I'm going to try and do them really well, and then I'm going to build out from there. So very excited about that part of it. I feel like the process uh, is getting better every time. The more reps I do, the better my communication is, the better my lingo is. Uh, I, I know more clearly what I need to see from each test to see if it's giving me good information, 
right? So when somebody does a squat jump or a counter movement jump or an isometric mid-thigh pull, I can look at it very quickly and deem, was this a good test? Yes. Uh, if not, why not? Why do we need to redo it? So I think my process is getting better. That's exciting. I think the next phase for me is kind of those moments after the assessment, right? So the, the athlete has gone away. Now it's time for me to interpret. And again, I'm trying to be realistic here because when I talk to guys like Drake from Hawkin, when I talk to guys like Alex Natera, uh, when I listen to guys like Matt Jordan, guys that have been in this game for years, if not decades, uh, you know, I try and be respectful of the fact that <laughs> I'm playing catch up and I'm trying to learn as much as I can. But I know that my interpretation of the data and what I'm seeing is the next step in the game. So how do I take these variables that I deem to be important and basically figure out, okay, what's important here? What's impactful? What can I, what can I use to really move the needle with their training? So for example, if somebody is just an incredibly low force producer, okay, how am I going to address that in their training? Uh, if somebody has a very shallow counter movement, right? So when they do their counter movement jump, they come down, Oh, it's just like super shallow. Okay, well, how can I address that? How is that impacting or limiting their performance? So I think that's the next phase for me. As I get better and better with the assessments and that process, the next phase is going to be, okay, once the assessment is done, how do I interpret this? And how do I use this information to make meaningful change with the programs that I write? Like, that's what this is all about. Like, at the end of the day, yes, there is like a smoke and mirrors effect. Like, if little Johnny came in and I wowed him with all of our cool tech, like that's awesome. And maybe that gets people in the door. But for me, how do I take that information and use it to make meaningful change with my programs? That's where I'm at. I would say the only downside to all of this is I liken force plates to having a Jeep, right? And, and I think Jeeps are a brilliant business model because they sell you on the Jeep and then after you get in a Jeep, you see all the cool like aftermarket stuff and you're like, ooh, I need that. Ooh, I need that. Well, I'm kind of kind of there as well because now I'm just like, oh man, I really want a better rig, right? Because I'm using my power rack uh, and it's working great. Don't get me wrong. You could use a power rack forever and be fine with it. But man, I'm just, I'm all in on this. So I want to get a little bit better rig. Uh, I want to get the big foam mat uh, or foam pad to put the plates in for when people jump because especially with my big guys, that have huge flipper feet, uh, I would like for them to have a big base to land on. So, uh, man, as you can tell, I'm just super excited about it. Very excited about where I think it's going to take uh, my training and my testing and my evaluation of my athletes over the years. I just, I'm very, very excited. Uh, so, Trevor, thank you for letting me ramble on a little bit about that. Very excited, and I will definitely be keeping you posted because I think there's a lot of cool stuff that I'll be able to do not just in the gym, but for people like you who are listening to this podcast and just kind of moving the industry forward. Again, I'm trying to be respectful of all the fact or all the great people that are doing this at a high level. But I think coming at this from a very newbie beginner's mindset approach, I can hopefully help kind of bridge that gap between where the high end practitioners are and the everyday coaches, because that's still to this day, I think of myself as a coach, I think I can help kind of bridge that gap 
and improve the communication between those two segments. So very excited and I'll definitely be keeping you guys posted on my progress with the force plates. Okay, this next question should be fun. It comes from Cindy and Cindy says, talk to me about content. How do you get ideas? And what are you focused on with your content these days? So this is a great question, Cindy. I think it's something that a lot of people like you need to think more about. And I think when you're considering getting into the content game, there's one question you have to answer very clearly before you get serious about this. And you have to ask yourself, who is your market? And I know this, this might sound super simple, but I mean, I had to have this reiterated to me a while back. Uh, I was meeting with my good friend and business advisor, Pat Rigsby, and I'm like, oh man, I think I should be creating more content around basketball and for basketball players. And Pat was like, why? Well, because I train basketball players. He's like, yes, but how many basketball players have you gotten from Instagram? Awkward pause. Right? Like I've gotten zero basketball players from Instagram. The basketball players I've gotten have come from either other athletes referring people they know or coaches who I've worked with referring athletes they know. So even though I work with basketball players, that's not my target market for my content. My content is created for trainers, coaches, and rehab professionals. It says that very clearly you know, on my website. On the boilerplate for this show, right? Trainers, coaches, rehab professionals. So you have to ask yourself, number one, who is my target market? Number two, the next thing you have to ask yourself is once you know your target market, what questions are they asking you? So if you own a gym and it's a fat loss gym, what questions are your fat loss clients asking you on a daily basis? If they're asking you, what food should I eat? How long should my workout be? Why do I do squats? Uh, what are my rest periods like? How many days per week should I train? All of these things that your clients are already asking you would be great pieces of content to put out there. Okay, so don't feel like you have to be this super creative person to create amazing content. Answer the questions that your clients and athletes are asking and I guarantee that will crush. Because if one person is willing to ask you that, there's 10. There's 50, there's 100 other people that want to know the answer to that same question. Now, for me, when you ask about my content and how I go about it, I'm a little bit different because, yes, I am a coach and I have that aspect uh, of who I am and what I do, but I'm also, to some degree, a content creator and I'm an educator. So for me, my approach may be a little bit different than yours. But what I determined years ago if you go way back to 2002, 2003, I was a writer. Like literally in my description, it would say, you know, coach, da, 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 writer. Now, content creator is probably more, uh, more correct, for lack of a better term, because content creation to me means articles, it means videos, and it means this podcast. And I did that because I saw the writing on the wall. This was probably... I don't know, seven, eight years ago now, well, it's before I started this show, but I realized everybody learns differently. There are the people that are my age, sometimes a little bit older, they love sitting down with a cup of coffee in their iPad, and they love reading articles. So I wanna create content for people like that. But there's also kind of the younger generation, 
And maybe they're not going to sit down and read a two or three or 4,000 word article, but they'll consume video content. So that's when I'm like, okay, hey, Paul, let's go. Let's start creating more YouTube videos, more Instagram videos. And then along those same lines, there are a lot of people that love audio content, right? They're going to go out and they're going to walk their dog for an hour, or they've got a 30 minute commute each way to work. Well, that's where a podcast fits in perfectly. Okay, so you have to respect the fact everyone learns differently. And, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing is trying to buck this trend of more is better. And whether we're talking Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all of those social media monsters feed on our content. They feed on the fact that you have to create and put stuff out there constantly. So you want to keep coming back. You want to keep looking at you know, somebody's stories or their reels or how many tweets they put up in the last 24 hours. So I think for me, it's trying to get away from that. It's not just about creating more content. It's refocusing on the fact that for me, better content is better content. More is not better. Better is better. So to give you a couple examples here, number one, I'm working on this program design article. Hopefully it will be up in the next week or so. But I really wanted to create something that was going to drive a lot of value. So instead of like a 1500 word article, this is going to be like a 5000 word article. It's going to really dive into why I write programs the way that I do and how to help people like you write better programs. Uh, If you look at the Paul Comfort podcast uh, from a couple weeks ago, man, that was a doozy. I think it was probably an hour and 15, hour and a half. It was longer than most shows. Now, I'm not going to be Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan and do three-hour episodes, but hey, whether it was this Paul Comfort show, I'm recording a show today with Steve Tajan and Darcy Norman of the U.S. Men's National Team. It's going to go a little bit long because these guys are world-class, and I want to create great content with them. So, Cindy, I want to leave you with one thought. And again, I think we get caught up in this FOMO effect. And we get caught up in this idea that we just got to keep doing stuff, you know, keep moving, stay busy, keep creating content. So I want you to think about this. Before you create any more content, ask yourself this question. If the content you're creating isn't fun, or if you're not enjoying doing it, is it really worth doing? Because I know a lot of people that do a lot of stuff on Instagram and they hate it. They're miserable. They're creating all this content. You know, we're talking thousands of posts. They got like 200 followers. Like, is that really moving the needle? Are you really enjoying that? And if not, I would say you probably need to find something else. So this has been a big thing for me. It's not just doing stuff to do stuff. It's like, hey, what stuff am I really passionate about? Well, if I'm going to create content, I want it to be really good content, really good articles. Uh, Even though the videos may be short, they solve a very specific issue that somebody may be working with or dealing with. If I'm going to create a podcast, I want it to deliver a lot of value. And hopefully it comes through. Like if I'm creating great content, it gets my juices flowing. And I think that comes through to people like you. So ask yourself, you know, if you're doing stuff and you're not enjoying it, okay, should I really be doing this or should I find another avenue? But man, I could talk forever about content, Cindy. I really hope this helped you out. Get clear on who you're creating content for uh, and then answer the questions that they're already asking you. If you do that, I can guarantee you're going to be really successful in the content creation game. Okay, our final question today comes from Sarah. 
And Sarah said, I loved your post on the one plus one method of queuing. Could you explain that in a bit more depth here? So first off, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. And again, coming back to Cindy's question from above, I think content that you enjoy creating is generally well received. So when we talk about this one plus one method of queuing, let's start with the backstory here. And I feel like a lot of coaches, myself included, either have had or have a tendency to overcoach or overcue. We like to hear our own voices. Maybe just coaching a lot, we see it as value, validation, right? Somebody's paying me $100 an hour to work with them. Hey, I got to coach and cue them a lot. I got to show that I'm interested and engaged. Maybe it just helps us or them feel like we care. But really, when we're like giving a cue every time somebody does a rep, we're absolutely overwhelming that client or athlete, right? And Steve Long and I talked about this, but going back to the idea of being a student, if you're a student and you're working with a teacher and you're trying to focus on something and at the same time they're giving you a performance cue every time you do a set or a rep or an activity, it's absolutely overwhelming and it destroys the learning process, okay? And part of our goal, or at least part of my goal as a trainer or coach is to help my clients and athletes move more effectively but without me having to coach and cue them incessantly. I don't want somebody to be reliant on me. And I think back to my guy, Ed Sumner. And when Ed was working with Joey for many, many years, you know, Joey was like really trying to break down his shot early on in his career. Like, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And that was necessary early on to help Ed understand the basic fundamental mechanics of being a great shooter. But as he moved on, Ed was like, hey, I actually need you to coach or cue me less because if I get in a game and I miss three shots in a row, you're not going to be there to tell me how to fix it. I need to be able to fix it on my own so that, you know, ultimately I'm the one learning how to do this and I'm internalizing this process versus being reliant on you. And I thought from the basketball space, that was amazing because I feel the same way with my clients and athletes. They're not going to be with me forever. You know, my athletes are going to go off and they're going to work with other strength coaches. Um, I think I'd be delusional if I thought every gen pop client that I worked with was going to train with me the rest of their adult life. You know, eventually they're going to move or maybe they find a different coach, whatever. Like I want to teach them these things so that they internalize it and they can go do them on their own. So coming back to this idea of the one plus one method, it's something I originally gave to an intern, right? I know this one probably intern was just going on and on and like monologuing and giving 30,000 coaching cues. And I was like, stop, stop, because you're overwhelming this person. So what I told them is you get to give them one setup cue and one performance cue. So fleshing this out, the one setup cue, the great thing about the setup cue is it's something they do once and then they could forget about it, right? So maybe their stance width is funky when they do a split squat, right? They're either too shallow or they're too far apart. So, hey, I need your feet to be here, all right? So once the setup cue is in place, they don't have to think about that anymore, right? So now when they go into the actual activity, you give them one performance cue to think about. So the feet are already set. Now you tell them, hey, I really need you to think about staying tall when you come down into the bottom of the split squat. That's it. You shut your mouth. <laughs> and again, this is really hard, but what it allows them to do 
is now they can internalize and focus on the process. They can start to learn how that movement pattern should feel without you just constantly barraging them with more things to think about. Okay, so one plus one, one setup cue, one performance cue. And then to kind of bring this all together, um, I've given credit to E for many years now because I just loved how succinctly he put this. But I think our goal when we're teaching movement or trying to improve the movement of our clients and athletes is to get a letter grade improvement every time somebody is in the gym. So for instance, if somebody comes in and their split squat is a D, you don't expect them to magically be an A at the end of the session. If you do, you're setting yourself up for some really unrealistic expectations and both you and the client are gonna be miserable. Instead, if somebody's a D, hey man, I just wanna get you to a C today. And maybe you don't tell them they're a D, I wouldn't suggest that. But in your mind, you know, hey, this person's a D, I need them to be a C. Or hey, this person's like a B, like they move really well. Man, I'm trying to get this person to an A on this activity. So I think that combination of one setup cue, one performance cue, and then over the course of that session or that workout, getting that letter grade improvement in their movement quality will really set both you and your clients and athletes up for success. So Sarah, fantastic question, and I hope that helps. And with that being said, that's it for this week's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. I love doing these little Q&A episodes. I feel like it helps me to reconnect with people like you, my listeners, and hopefully give you guys some insights as to where I'm at, whether it's regard to coaching and queuing, program design, like the things that are the backbone of who I am, and also allows me to explore some of these new topics and areas that I'm excited about, whether it's force plates, whether it's helping you create better content for the clients and athletes you work with. Man, I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I do. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.